Welcome to the Football New South Wales Community Podcast, covering the great people, stories and initiatives from around the football family. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri, and today we have a special post-FIFA Women's World Cup edition discussing the incredible events we witnessed and how the community embraced female football and, importantly, what lies ahead. And to discuss these points, we've put together a great panel with representatives from local, state and national level of the game. Joining me is Linda Cerrone, the CEO of the Nepean Football Association. Linda, hello. Hello. We've also got Helen Armson, the Football New South Wales Legacy Manager. Helen, hello. Hello. And also Carly Milliken, the General Manager of the World Cup Legacy Program. Carly, we'll start with you. Tell us a bit about your role and what it entails. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to be here and great to chat about the World Cup. Obviously, it was a fantastic event, so um, we'll try to keep it nice and, and short and sweet. But yeah, um, I work at, at Football Australia. I've been brought in uh, two and a half years ago um, within this role around legacy. And it was really key when we won the, the rights to host the Women's World Cup that we um, got on the front foot with legacy. You know, legacy doesn't start um, post-tournament, actually starts multiple years in front. Um, so a lot of my role has been about setting up those processes, um, both internally with with Football Australia, but working with um, our member federations, so Helen, um, as well as our clubs and associations on how we roll that out. And Helen, tell us about your role at Football New South Wales as the Legacy Manager. Yeah, so I started uh, just over 12 months ago in September, um, and that's as a result of um, a fantastic legacy program that we um, obtained from the New South Wales government, so a $10 million investment um, into women's football for New South Wales. So myself and a team of four others um, were employed to roll that out across the participation and infrastructure um, for the next couple of years in uh, New South Wales football. And uh, Linda, for those not familiar with the Nepean Football Association, tell us what part of the state uh, you uh, cover uh, how many registered players and also sort of the, the top notes about what your association uh, deals with in a football sense. Okay, uh, we are located in outer western Sydney. Um, we sit between Katoomba in the Blue Mountains, St Mary's in the east, Warragamba in the south, and the Hawkesbury suburbs. Of, uh, we go out as far as Pitt Town and Glossodia in the northwest. Um, so we cover a really, really large um, geographical footprint, um, but lots of national park, lots of farmland, so um, not as heavily populated registration number-wise as, say, a smaller association that would sit, say, right next to us. We've got about 12,000 members, and if we bring our summer football members into that, we, we jump up to around the 14,500, 15,000 members, uh, 30 clubs and uh, 1,100 teams thereabouts. So enough to keep a, a good group of us pretty busy. Um, we run 12 months of the year now, so summer football um, and then just the regular winter football in the, in the winter season. So um, No rest in football anymore. No rest. Um, no, no rest for the wicked. Um, I've been with Nepean football in my role for I'm just finishing my 25th year so I don't know some people might call me a, 
a relic and others might call me a, <laughs> a national institution. Um, it depends on your dealings with me, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I've been around a long time and uh, this year by far has been one of the most exciting years as, as far as being a, a involved in the game, just with the, the whole World Cup uh, in, our, in our backyard. It's been brilliant. Well, it's great to have a panel that will have a tangible impact in actually applying the World Cup legacy and shaping what it is as far as actually having a, a real hands-on effect given the connections to the grassroots that is currently surrounding this table. But we're going to start just more with reflecting on the tournament itself. And you can take this in any direction you want, but sort of when I say what was the, the highlight of your tournament, what I want to tap into is what you saw with how the game was embraced by the wider community, but also the effect that it had on the existing football community. So by all means, take it away. Uh, what was your highlight of the World Cup? Yeah, I'll start. So I think, um, well, taking out, of course, the Matildas and the amazing um, performance that they did, I think the highlight was probably the fact that it was embraced by so many what you would call non-traditional footballers. So um, we always knew that it would be a really popular event within the football community. But I, my highlight um, personally was probably I'm from a family of, of men. I have a, a husband and three sons. And, you know, when I first bought tickets, I bought a stadium pass um, at Stadium Australia and I bought that when they first came out sort of last year sometime. And I bought two tickets to each of those games and I sort of was thinking, oh, well, I'm sure my husband will come to the World Cup final, but the rest of the tickets for the semis and quarterfinal, I'll end up probably taking a girlfriend or someone who's interested in football. I, I didn't actually think that my kids would want to go. However, I was so wrong and probably, the yeah, like I said, the highlight was every time a game was coming up and I had tickets, there was a fight within my family between sort of my sons and my husband as to who was going to get to go with me and we ended up buying so many more tickets and, you know, my, my youngest son, who's 19, I mean, he went to as many games as I did. Um, so for me it was, you know, they're footballers anyway, they play football, but I loved that they were excited and inspired to watch, you know, female football, which I think traditionally we – sometimes I think we forget that female football is for everyone. We tend to focus really on females – and females watching female football, but I love that, you know, it was just anyone, um, you know, lots of different people. And I had people texting me from lots of different friendship groups going, oh, my God, how exciting is the World Cup? And, you know, they wouldn't have known anything about football before. So that for me was the real, the, the breadth and reach of it all. Yeah, and I think just tying into that, Helen, um, the, the memory that sticks out for me is actually I was walking down Caxton Street um, towards Brisbane Stadium and there was two boys, maybe 10 or 11 years old, um, starting to Let's Go Tilly's chant. Um, and I think, you know, if I was to imagine that, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, you know, yes, yes, that's exactly what we wanted, but to actually see that come to life into fruition was was pretty special. And I think... Um, what I what I hope is that that's going to be their norm. They're, they've grown up watching strong, powerful women um, be role models, and they're looking up to them. and And you know, boys saying that they want to be Matildas um, is is pretty powerful in itself. And I think uh, what we see in terms of the ripple effect through communities and um, how um, they then um, look up to women. 
um, and what that broader effect is in society is going to be really interesting and I think it's going to be one of those really positive impacts out of the World Cup that maybe we didn't um, necessarily set out to to achieve it at the beginning of, of our legacy program but it's something that we're definitely looking at in terms of that broader social impact from now on. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to agree um, with both of you. The the number of people that have either haven't been involved in football before or have just seen it on the periphery and um, that that just got behind it. Um, some we've seen some almost you know total religious conversions in some cases. People have just um, uh, you know they, they've jumped into A League memberships. They've jumped into um, putting their kids in in the sport. Um, there's, there were so many, so many different highlights for us. Our, our highlight started uh, a month or so before when we had the, the World Cup um, trophy tour came into Penrith, and you know we just, you know, we expected some interest from because um, we coincided it with a, a gala day for young teams, and so we expected some interest, and in, and you know mainly around the 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 families of the children that were playing, but the number of people that turned up yes, to that see is. that trophy that had nothing to do with kids on the field or playing or whatever, people came from all over all over the state to see it. So that was really, uh, that was exciting to do. And then, you know, just the, the amount of engagement, you know, people just stopping you in the street or, you know, phoning you for what would normally be, you know, an account inquiry or something and you go off on a half-hour tangent about yesterday's game, um, that was great. For me, the highlight was was um, being able to go to the games with four, four generations of my family. So I was there with my granddaughter, I was there with my children, I was there with my 78-year-old mother who went to her very first World Cup um, and she is a mad football freak. She's she's from England, the northeast of England, and there is nothing else but football. There is no other sport. And she just never thought she'd see a World Cup in her lifetime. So she was um, over the moon. She was probably by far the most excited of all the people that I took to the game. So, great. Helen, tell us about some of the Football New South Wales community activations that went on during the World Cup. Yeah, we had some awesome, I think there was over 80 um, events held around the around the state and, and that was, you know, from just even watch parties where uh, people were had organised big pop-up sort of um, screens at, at their grounds where they'd have uh, events there. We had lots of gala days or mini World Cups. A couple of associations ran some some great mini World Cups where they had teams um, come in and, and pick one of the countries that were, you know, playing in the World Cup. And I think that's probably the other thing that was exciting was the multiculturalism of, of um, spectators picking a second team behind the Matildas. So, you know, some of the, the Colombian and Spanish um, spectators were amazing. Um, we also had sort of come and try days. So I know at one of the, the clubs in the Northwest Association, they had a come and try day for, for minis, you know, four, four to eight-year-olds, and they had over 80 kids turn up. Um, so they're first-time participants, you know, wanting to improve their soccer skills. So there were so many different um, activities you know, and I think the other really nice thing was that clubs got involved with local sort of um, bowling clubs or other sports clubs to hold events. Um, and I think that's where it really brought in um, those additional people who aren't necessarily traditional football spectators. 
So let's get into the post-World Cup momentum. Maybe start with the impact on registration and summer football programs um, and the non-traditional delivery of, you know, the winter competitions is probably somewhere where we'll see the first real spike. So, um, Linda, tell us about maybe any additional uptake or any groundswell of support that's been coming through in your association. Uh, our summer football uh, take-up was immediate would be an understatement. Uh, so we have a summer football that we usually run four nights a week. So we upped it to five nights a week. So it's had a 20% increase straight up. Um, and we normally take about two weeks to to fill all of the vacancies. So we have a finite number of teams that we can take in each age group. We have a, a about a two-week period where it takes to fill all of those and we know that we've definitely got 100% participation going to happen. Our um, 6 to 12-year-old age groups sold out in six minutes this year. So when we started getting phone calls about 10 minutes after we, we opened um, the team nominations and we thought our system was broken because there was people phoning saying, um, it's telling me that I can't register, that it's full and I'll just hang on a second and we'll have a look at that and, and jumped in to have a look. And we had sold out the 6 to 12 age group in, in um, sorry, I said 6 minutes, I think it was 16 minutes. And the um, the rest of the age groups were, were basically taken up within four or five days, gone. So complete 100% take up. So when you hear a story like this, what does your mind think, well, is it a, how do we provide more capacity? How do we provide for the demand? What is your default when you hear these stories? Because I'm sure you're hearing them all around the country. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely not a not a one-off. It's something that we're hearing um, from absolutely every level of football at the moment. And um, we we knew this. We knew that how big the the FIFA Women's World Cup was going to be. And um, you know, all of our conversations to government to date has been about there's going to be an influx. There's going to be an interest off the back of the World Cup. We need more pitches. We need more access to facilities. Um, we need to improve facilities to Im- increase that capacity, but also support our clubs in order to help build that capability. So that they can actually continue to host competitions and increase the amount of teams. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it warms my heart when I hear about it because it's exactly what what we set out to do at, at FA when we won the, the World Cup and it's associations like yourself that are really driving that. Um, so it's fantastic to hear. But from a practical application point of view, if, if you had a sort of a, a clean slate to get what you needed. What is it that you need? And then what is it that practically you think you'll be able to actually provide that uh, incentive and desire for football to your community in sort of the realistic short term? But let's start with the big picture. What would you love to be able to provide? Uh, well, so in our district, we're, we're a little bit different. We're not yet landlocked. And I, and I will speak on behalf of the many associations in Sydney that I know are already um, in that position where they, they they need more facilities. They're, they're at capacity. Um, as I said, when, when you first introduced me, we've got lots of country fields around our area. So, you know, we've still got some room for growth as far as facilities, but definitely facilities is it's a little bit more than just a field. You want quality facilities because the people that are registering into football have, again, a finite dollar to spend. So they want to spend it somewhere where they're getting good value for money. Um, 
So, you know, and that means a good facility, um, a facility that caters to to everyone that's playing and not just uh, the traditional men that used to play or the boys that used to play. Um, and, yeah, we need um, more um, background support in the game. So it's, it's not enough just to have facilities or to have a good field. We need the referees on board that are going to referee those games. No point offering a service if that service is substandard. Um, so... So it's infrastructure as well as as facilities that we need, I believe. And, and I think the facilities have to be, yeah, I mean, it's it's the long term. It's an investment in them. It's the maintenance of them. And it's, as, as Carly was saying before, it's about having lighting, you know, being able to utilise a facility um, not just for daylight hours or a couple of times a week. You, you want longevity because the number of people that are coming into the sport, it's yeah, drainage on those fields and making them uh, as playable as you can for as much as you can of the of the week because, you know, unfortunately football is pretty heavy on a on a pitch. You've got, you know, 20-odd players on there yeah. um, and you're running sort of six to eight games a day. So it's, it's heavy traffic on a field. And I think it's about sort of thinking outside the box and not just looking to council grounds but looking at school grounds or private facilities or or space and, yeah, where, where there is space involved and that's where it's important to be dealing with governments and councils to start that future planning because there's no point putting in a huge development without facilities around for people to be able to play on those longer terms. So, yeah, it's, it's really important that we work with a lot of different people to try and... Um, make sure that we've got those facilities available. And then I think leading into that is then looking at your flexible formats of the games that you play. And that's... I think flexible formats are, are key. It's and, and, and it's one of the few games that really does lend itself to a whole lot of flexibility, um, you know, whether it's 5v5, 9v9, whatever that is, seven. indoor, outdoor, outdoor on a hard surface, outdoor on grass. Um, daytime comps, nighttime comps, whatever. We we really do have that wonderful flexibility with our sport that a lot of other sports don't enjoy. So I think that's another thing that as associations we can look at doing is is diverting a little bit from that traditional 11 v 11. And yeah. whilst, you know, if we're ever going to be a Matilda or a Socceroo, we have to excel at that 11 v 11. But there's so much more room for so many more participants in our sport if we if we can just get comfortable with diversifying the product that we offer. And I think as well, in, in regards to that, a lot of feedback we've had, particularly from, from women, adult women, is that they'd prefer to play one of those flexible formats of the game. And I think if, you know, as we strive to get 50-50 and, and go for our gender parity goals, we have to really expand that side of the game because that's that's what they're they're saying they want. Um, yes, we should 100% still still offer our outdoor football, but you're right. It's about offering a range that someone can say, "Yep, yeah, this is the this is the format that I would like to choose and and be able to participate in it." Oh, I've got a question about club culture because it's not just the player uptake. You mentioned uh, Linda, the referee requirements, but it's also you need more administrators. You need more people to do things to provide the game. And I'll start with you, Helen, but I, I like to use the example of um, in Victoria, where, where I'm from, there was one club that were perceived to be a great club, but it was off the back of one administrator whose sole ambition was to see the senior men's team be the champion of Victoria. 
and women's football, junior football, pretty much anything else about the club was largely in irrelevance. All the time and effort that person put in, who basically ran the club, went into that point in the funnel. And when he left, the club fell over, has been relegated multiple times, is no longer perceived to be a great club. But without that work of the one administrator, there was no club to begin with. So in terms of changing the culture and the mentality of people who run the clubs, because we all know people who are rusted on and without them, the club would not function. And one person can play a very underrated role in providing football to 300, 500, 1,000 people. And we don't realise that if they're not there, it's they're basically working full-time hours for free as a volunteer or as a passion project, someone's not going to step up and actually fill that gap. So in terms of, you know, you talk about providing uh, alternative delivery of the game, maximising the use of pitches, thinking outside the square, how much of that comes back to the mentality of clubs and the culture of clubs and who actually does the work administering clubs? Because you, you are, I'm sure, going to find people with a very set mindset on how football should be played and how it should be provided but if that person doesn't turn up to work, there's no club to begin with. So how have you worked to, and you, all three can answer, but I'll start with you, Helen. How have you worked to change club culture and bring more people into the administrative space to realise the importance they have in actually providing the game for that demand that's out there? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's funny, Carly and I were talking about it um, just off air before about, you know, there's this saying that's going around about you can't be what you can't see. And and from a player perspective, that's totally true. But actually from a coaching and volunteer and administrator perspective, it also fits. So you're quite right. If you turn up to a club that's run by men is the traditionalist of the 11-a-side Saturday soccer type format. And if you don't have um, if, if someone comes into that environment who's a young female, they're not going to feel like they have any sort of support or understanding or they don't feel like they fit in. So our aim is to try and really get a huge range of volunteers to start because, of course, many hands make light work um, so that you, you aren't relying on that one person being involved. But also you've got a range of people who, with different skill sets, different backgrounds and different experiences that can really contribute to um, the success of something. So if you've got um, a, a group of people and, and in particular in that female space, we want to encourage females to get involved, become coaches so that that encourages other females to see female coaches and think, well, I can do that and I can emulate that and they can practice um, or, you know, get a, a club together or a group together that have similar um, outlooks and similar experiences so same thing with the administrator space. Um, and actually football does reasonably well in the administrator space in the women's in the women's space. I think we have around 40% um, on some of our committees and boards. But, yeah, it, it's really important to try and, um, you know, we're trying to run sort of female coach presenter um, courses and get women into coaching and administrating, volunteering, starting networks in that leadership role to be able to have a say to, to improve that um, diversity. Yeah, and I think touching on the diversity, football is representative of all of society, but sometimes we don't see that then filter into a club committee or volunteers or coaches. And I think that really needs to be our goal is that um, there is that diversity on every single club committee so that those that are making the decisions are actually doing it from a lived experience perspective. And then that way those decisions will then flow through more positively down to the, the participants who are playing our game. Um, and I think the other thing um, just to touch on is 
is um, this idea of the movable middle. When we talk about changing cultures, um, there is that that group in the middle that we can focus on that can actually have a really big impact if we're able to change their attitudes, change their beliefs in order to be towards um, where we want football to go, which is obviously be be inclusive and be able to provide access to all. I'm, I'm agree with with both of you, um, but I'm also going to go out on a limb um, and say that, that training and education are a key to to a strong administrator or a strong operations person. They need to understand their environment. So that sits, I think, with associations and with Football New South Wales. And I know... Um, from an association perspective, we believe Football New South Wales are doing just about all that they can in that area. I think I think they've got a really good track record as far as as um, imparting knowledge to to other levels. But I think um, I think we can do more because we often look at um, like the focus uh, over the last few years has been female female football, female administrators, um, training females, making um, training available for females. Um, from from where I come from, we have a board of eight directors and five are female. So that's um, not, I know that's not the norm. Um, and myself as the, as the CEO, um, also being female. So, so we've got the example, it's running at the moment, I think where we sometimes see problem is that all the training that we've been giving, we actually don't give to our male counterparts. We don't give it to to the male committee members at our club level. So do they know how to work with females? Do they know how to work harmoniously with females? Or, or are they just being left behind? Because I haven't seen that training go out to our male counterparts at association level from from higher up. Um, the focus has always been um, for, you know, a good 10 years, I would say, on, on bringing females up. And I understand and appreciate the need to bring females up to, to speed. But what I feel is that we're perhaps leaving our male counterparts behind. They're not getting the same sort of valuable training that we're actually giving to females. And I think we need to, when we talk about equality, we need to start looking at that level. Yeah, and I think it's it's a really good point. We're definitely looking at it from a, a Football Australia perspective because I agree with you. It's the more that we can um, arm people with information, both men and women, the more that we're going to work together in a collaborative manner, in an inclusive manner, and ultimately achieve greater outcomes. So I, I definitely agree training education should be across the board. It shouldn't be specific. I think historically um, there's been this idea of, of we need to fix women or train women, um, but the reality is we need to, yes, provide them the opportunity and, and provide them the, the access and the information, but that is the same as our, as our male card and part, so they can actually sponsor women and help elevate them within those positions. So It, it kind of goes back to that you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. But that I think that that also applies to our male counterparts. And and if if their training has come from... Um, dad, granddad, whoever has been involved in football for generations, and this is how we've always done it, then unless they're shown a different way to do it, 
then they also can't be what they can't see. Yeah, they're, they're not going to change. That's going to stay the same way because it's a traditional tribal sport. Yeah. So, you know, we need to introduce some new blood into the tribe. And everyone has unconscious bias, right? So yeah. it's important for men and women to understand what their unconscious bias is in order for them in those environments. To address it. They can't address it unless they know that they've got it to start yeah. with. And having those respectful conversations at that club level and at that committee level, and that's what generates good club culture, isn't it? Like yeah. It's it's having that, you know, that broad, diverse base of, of people who are setting the club culture and ensuring that that's, that's followed right through, you know, down to the, the players. Yeah. I have another question to follow on from this about club culture. And, Linda, I'll start with you to lead off on this one. I'll, I'll use the case study. When I was working in a different sport, there used to be the idea of destination clubs. So uh, the club that everyone wanted to play for would always come to the league HQ and say, all right, we, we want to add a 14B, a 14C, an under-14D team because we have the demand. They were where everyone wanted to come in at the top of the funnel and the league held firm on, no, no, you only have one team per age group, under-14s, you're not going to get a B team or a C team. But the problem is if there was too much coming in the top of the funnel – players that missed out on that one under-14 team at the Destination Club would not go and play at undesirable clubs surrounding them. They would go to a different association altogether. Their parents would just drive them further away or they wouldn't play at all. And so when it comes to club culture, how do you sort of address the perception of a destination club and address the the perception of an undesirable club but also i mean the you know ultimately the association uh, that i used to work for fixed this problem by simply giving them under 14 b c and d teams because what they saw was the opportunity to make more money from registration right. so they, they and ultimately more more players ended up playing football well a different kind of football that's great but the the solution also meant that at the end of the day that team's playing its in the grand final every year rather than playing against a different club. So I'm sure, you know, given your experience, you have dealt with these sort of problems and nuances every day of, of your working career. What do you think the opportunity we have now is in terms of changing culture? You know, talk about how clubs are run, how they're administrated, how they use their facilities. But using that little anecdote I've shared, what, what do you think we can improve going forward? I think you, you'll always have um, destination Clubs, you'll, you'll, you know, people are drawn to excellence. They're drawn to um, things that are well run, rather than, you know, going to that club where, you know, the canteen doesn't open until an hour after the last game because, you know, they just couldn't get their their act together. But it, 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 it's it's particularly unique for the Women's World Cup because there's going to be so many people totally new to the sport coming in who are going to rely on word of mouth, what the kid brings home from school in the schoolyard as to what the perception of the best clubs and the ones you don't want to play for are? They're, 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 if you're talking about females coming into the sport, they're definitely going to gravitate towards the clubs that have got a good track record for female football or are showing their willingness to pick up their game and, you know, um, open open themselves up to to more, fo- uh, more and better football uh, experiences for females. Um, but again, I think a lot of it comes back down to education, we'll often have a, a, a club that, you know, has had a drop in membership and they'll say, oh, it's, it's not fair, that club over there is stealing all of our players. And it's, 
are actually still players. The players are leaving you because you're not delivering what they want. You've got to take some ownership of that. You've got to take some, you know, have a really hard look at yourself and and say, what does this club do that we're not doing? And and make some corrections to, to the path that your club is going on. Um, you know, and if you can't do that... Um, product, then you know, have a look at attitudes. Have a look at the attitudes of the people that are that are serving the community. You know, and is your attitude one of, you know, can't be bothered, or is your attitude one of, um, look, I need a little bit of help. I'm not perfect, but if you can help, we can get better. But f- further to that, has Football Australia discussed what to do with sort of parents make the decisions on where their their children play ultimately? on people who are totally new to the sport, maybe completely uninitiated and thus could be very easily swayed and persuaded. Having not done the work, it's as simple as just going into Google, you know, find your nearest club and, and that might be your starting point or again, be altered by the perceptions of who's top or who your children's social circle say is the best club. I mean, have you been working with clubs to make sure that when they harness this momentum, they're doing it in a way that can present themselves in the best possible light and not fall victim to maybe, you know, the, the uninformed market forces that may sway people? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the classic way that you go about it at the moment is you go into playfootball.com.au and, and you search and you put in your postcode and you find your nearest club. Um, we've got a, a really fantastic program that we're working closely with, with Football New South Wales on called Club Changer, um, which is all about preparing our clubs um, for the influx that was happening post-World Cup. Um, the number one mo- uh, module as part of that is women and girls and how that club sets themselves up to be um, inclusive and female-friendly and attract more women and girls towards the game. So something we are looking into, particularly for this upcoming registration season, is how can on playfootball.com, when the club comes up, how can we put on a little badge there that says that they're part of this program, that they are really driving their women and girls initiatives and they want to be part of, of the future of football. So that's something that we're definitely looking to help support clubs in terms of putting their name out there, um, giving them ideas as to what attracts women and girls. So is there social media? Do they have posts of women and girls um, playing on the weekend? Um, or is it just men and boys? That's a really simple one. If I was looking for a team and I went onto a socials page and all I could see was men and boys, I wouldn't feel like that club was for me. So how? what external um, uh, aspect are you putting out of your club and how does that then in turn attract women and girls into your into your game? Yeah. I, think the, I think the club changer has got so much potential, so much really great potential, especially if we can get it um, branded and if we can get that branding knowledge out into the community so they know, you know, I'm, I, I want to sign my kid up for, a, for for football. Oh, this club's a two-star club. This club's a one-star club. That, it's a good benchmark, isn't it? Yeah, for, that to- just tells people that... that these clubs aren't just sitting still and just waiting for the for the registrations to come, but they're actively pursuing excellence. Um, and to take it down to an association level, associations can encourage excellence as well. We have a uh, an excellence in club administration award that we award every year to a club, and there's a whole bunch of criteria that um, that that uh, we assess in order to give that award. But, um, you know, when it's got it, that club has the mantle for 12 months of, of you know, the, the the best administered club in our district. So um, 
Yeah, I think clubs have got to assess their high watermark and work out how what capacity they can take within their their club and and how do they achieve that. And that's club changer is a really good like it, yeah, it's a good benchmark to see where you're at. Do you have female friendly facilities? Or do you have the appropriate number of fields? Do you have enough committee members? How do you deal with your coaches and managers? Do you provide training? Do you provide mentoring and support? Because all those sorts of things. I mean, like you said, a parent that turns up to a club, you know, a lot of it is going to be first impression. So they're going to turn up and they're going to see how well is it organised and are there coaches or is there someone I can go to if I've got a problem or how do I how do I get onto the social media or when I send an email, is it responded quickly? Those sorts of things are the introduction for someone having a positive experience. And, you know, I think they say the experiences in football are relating to fields, competitions and coaching. So, you know, coaching is is one of the hugest areas for I think development and, it, and it's difficult because most of them are volunteers and certainly when you start at a football club in under sixes, the coaches are all going to be mums or dads um, generally. So how do we empower them and, and give them resources to make their experience positive, which also then makes the players ex- positive and then they'll want to come back. Day after day, Kappa rewrites the concept of sportswear. Kappa means teamwork, past, present and future. Kappa never stops, because winning starts within. Two people, one brand. Kappa. So uh, let's. we've talked about sort of different ways clubs can run themselves, changing and improving club culture, uh, delivering different types of football. But let's actually talk about the dollar side of things, the lobbying and what government is going to be providing. Big picture, Carly, um, the World Cup Legacy Fund and the rollout of how that works, both at a, a football Australia and a football New South Wales level. Where are we at in terms of delivery of what is coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I think um, if you if you look to date, there's we've we've achieved a total of um, three hundred and fifty million dollars unlocked it into our sport. Now, when I say that, majority of that funding has gone into stadiums. So um, that's to, for example. Um, getting those stadiums ready um, and those facilities ready to host the World Cup Games. Yes, that will have a a broader impact down the line, um, but really there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to getting in um, the the right funding for our participation, for our facilities at a community level, not a stadium level. Um, So that is a a huge focus for us. Obviously, a a massive piece was the announcement of the $200 million um, fund by federal government. Um, So that's something we're really proud of in terms of the Matildas leading the way and, and inspiring the government to, to commit such a, a great thing, not just for, for women's football, but for all women's sport. Um, so in terms of what's next, we're looking forward to, to continuing to work with the government, particularly around that $200 million and how we can unlock it for as many football clubs as we can, because we've spoken a lot about on this podcast facilities. And I think, um, you know, nationally, only 40% of our facilities are inclusive for women and girls. So we've got a long way to go when it comes to making sure that we can we can provide an adequate experience. Um, like Helen just said, a positive experience is everything. It's not only going to attract girls into our game, but it's going to retain them. So in terms of what's next, it's continuing to to work with governments at all levels. Um, and it's something that we will do with Football New South Wales and our associations as, as best we can um, to make sure that we go with a consolidated 
position on what exactly we want, what exactly we need. Um, and I think we have a really, really good idea about that. And a lot of it is is centred around facilities at the moment. From a football New South Wales point of view, um, I understand there's been quite a bit of legacy program funding committed, but as far as uh, where that is on the conveyor belt and how much of it has been rolled out, give us a, a status update and tell us about what might be coming in the future. Yeah, so we're um, or halfway through the the program of the two year commitment. So the um, and it's it's broken up. Um, about six million of it is again in infrastructure. So the second round um, of the infrastructure. The grant process has just closed, so they've just been assessed. Um, first round was about two and a half million, and the second round, um, we expect an announcement from the minister, hopefully, well, certainly before the end of the year. Um, so there'll be another sort of two and a half million has gone out there. Um, and then there was around $650,000 in participation. So that's clubs could apply directly um, to run programs up to $15,000 in the participation space. So that also has just closed. And then we've, we've, we've got um, still our scholarship program running. Um, and that's for coaches and referees. And then we've also got its administrators and volunteers. So we, we had a bit of a slow take up, I think, of that initially when, when, and I think there was so much excitement around the World Cup that people were probably more focused on the actual World Cup. But now they're starting to really get a little more, um, I guess, insular and think about, okay, what do I need in my area? And so we, we've still got, um, you know, so in the advanced go- coaching space, we've got A licenses or A diplomas, B diplomas and C diploma scholarship, coaching scholarships available for New South Wales um, participants. We've got Emma Kotzbeck, the Community Football Referees Coordinator, who does a fantastic job with our referee scholarships. She's also a, an A-League um, assistant referee and she's very passionate about the female referee space and she's done an amazing job um, at getting new referees in in the female space. And again, I love that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. She's really um, made a big difference in that space and she'll be running that again in December this year um, to get new referees. We also have online courses available for our volunteer administrators and that's through clubs and associations and they cover, um, you know, a range of different budgeting, leadership, um, conflict, resolution, HR, um and so that's an opportunity for clubs to apply for that. And then we've also got our leadership program. We're running our second leadership program at the end of this year. Um, and, you know, we're really excited. We have Ebru Coxall, who is a, a well-known or sort of well-renowned, respected international um, football advocate. And she runs, she comes out and uh, we're lucky to have her be able to do our face-to-face component of our second leadership conference at the end of the year. So, Linda, uh, once the funding is sort of exhausted from this halo effect of the World Cup, what is the the practical action that associations and clubs then continue to take? I mean, one of football's great issues with lobbying is that whether it's a club, an association, a state governing body, the national governing body, and now the APL, you have potentially a lot of hands that are out and football does suffer from not having that centralised approach that maybe other sports like the AFL or the NRL, you know, are able to maybe with their benevolent dictatorships uh, administer all of their um, their lobbying and their concentration of lobbying into one centralised position. So what, what do you think the practical flow on effect is after the World Cup Legacy Fund has sort of been uh, exercised and exhausted? I think um, some smart financial planning on... on uh 
on behalf of the, all of the associations. I think it, it, it um, it's incumbent upon associations to to set aside a decent portion of their funding or of their their surpluses to um, education. Um, and I'm a big uh, I'm a big fan of of helping yourself and doing everything that you can to help yourself rather than um, you know just always asking for money. I think if if nothing else, that's what being in this industry for 25 years has taught me is that that there's not a bottomless pot of money. And, um, you know, there's so many other areas of, of life that governments are, are responsible for. You know, I'd hate to think that that we were offering a, a substandard education system or a substandard health system in order to have female change rooms at a, at a venue. So whilst we all want to see that, that female-friendly change room, we've also got to accept that that there's only a certain amount of money in society and it's got to go a long way. So do whatever you can to help yourself. Look at the resources that you have from within. Look at the experienced people that you already have within. Can they help to deliver that knowledge that um, you know that you can't afford to necessarily pay an RTO to deliver, or you can't afford to pay a guest speaker to deliver. But is that knowledge base already existing within your district, and use that um, use that to to build what you need? Invest in coach and um, player education. So if you know if you're going to hire staff, look at hiring staff that can deliver coach education and um, and player development um, without having to go external to your organisation. So I think it's it's how you carefully funnel those funds to where you need. And I th- I think you want to, you know, it'd be fantastic if every club had a female football advocate. They don't have to be female. They have to be a female football advocate. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, you know, and that can be a volunteer person, but if every club had one, then you've got someone thinking about um, how they can improve that experience for females. And it might be, yeah, it might relate to um, management. It re- might relate to email communication. It might relate to coaching, player experience. I think that if we can, you know, start small and everybody, like you said, everybody, you do have to, you know, play your own part. But if we can get every club to sort of have that as part of their their project plan or their what they want to achieve for, for the next year and the year to come, it's get an advocate on board who is in the decision-making process and can and can affect those changes. I think the other thing, just to take a bit of a, a different tangent, is the commercialisation aspect of it. Um, I think what this World Cup has shown to everyday Australia is that um, there's a reason why everyone's gotten behind football and football is the world game. And I think there's an opportunity for, for clubs and associations to to look at, at their commercial properties and how they might be able to to start to get some further interest in from, from local business organisations. Um, I think now is the time to capitalise on that for sure because everyone can see the benefit of the World Cup and they can see what football has done for for the whole um, the whole country. So for me, commercialisation is is a really key target. I know it's a key target from a national level because um, what we're seeing holistically across 
um, not just women's football, but women's sport is the value behind it. And businesses and organisations are wanting to get involved. I think it's our job to be able to provide them that opportunity and provide them, um, whether that's that program or that um, uh, key key aspect or link to a team that they can start to get behind and start to invest in our game. I want to follow on from this because I wasn't sure if I was going to have a window to ask this or not, but you've, you've given me a window to ask it. I, People can feel great loyalty to a club or a badge or an emblem, but ultimately it is the player who is the hero. And before the World Cup, everyone wanted to be Sam Kerr. And after the World Cup, quite a lot of people want to play football because Courtney Vine plays football. And scoring that penalty in the shootout against France is the greatest thing that's happened for her career, um, never mind the fact that it won Australia the game. But what is the value, do you think, of having Courtney Vine stay in Australia? Obviously, she's she's from uh, born in Victoria, grew up in Queensland, and has played NPL in New South Wales, and has played for Newcastle, Western Sydney Wanderers, and now Sydney FC. So, I think I think New South Wales can claim her to an extent. But we're definitely claiming. What, what is what is the value of Courtney Vine as a figurehead, as that person who inspires? people to say, I want to play. Because we were talking about it earlier. When you walk in and you get that first impression of a club, you know, I always thought back to how realistic would it be, uh, and I always applied this to Victoria where I worked at Football Victoria, how, how realistic would it be to walk into certain clubs at the top of the pyramid in the men's NPL and see a poster of Sam Kerr on the wall? And, and there is somewhere it would be 0%. But how much more valuable is it now to have the person, you know, Courtney Vine, in Australia as that figurehead and as that hero that can motivate and inspire people to want to play and be involved in the game. Yeah, I think it's in, it's invaluable um, to have her here. I think you've you've seen there's this one photo that was done recently where she went to a local school and all you can see is the hats of the, the girls in the school and she's almost swarmed by them. Um, and I think that tells a really powerful story of, of what it has been like to have Courtney stay in the country. Um, so I think we're yet to see the full impact of that. I'm really excited for this A-League women's season. Obviously, it kicks off um, this weekend and, and we're really going to start to see these players put up in lights, um, which is going to be amazing. But, you know, beyond Courtney Vine, we've got a lot of other current Matildas that are that are staying within the A-League women's, um, like Emily Gilnick, Tamika Yallop, um, Kaya Simon. So there's some really fantastic opportunities for us to start to um, link uh, our football pyramid. You know, it's been important for us between our national teams and our grassroots, but the A-League women's and that domestic competition, including the NPL and New South Wales, we need to be able to link that really clearly so that these players coming through can see that pathway and they can they can aspire to be part of it. At a local association level, though, how important is it having the heroes in order to kind of generate and perpetuate that interest in the game? I mean, obviously, the loyalty to the badge and the club is what people will, you know, their affinity and a lot of people's relationship. You know, they may not be too familiar with the Nepean Association. Their entire relationship with football might be through their own club. I think back to when I played cricket. I couldn't tell you who administered the competition. All I did was go to my own club and get a lift with mates to away games. I couldn't even tell you the names of the opposition. My entire involvement with the game was purely through my own club. So tell us about sort of where you see, you know, people's uh, association and, and, and appreciation of the bigger picture of football going as a result of the World Cup. I, I really love seeing club loyalty because club loyalty is... Um 
you know, that's the reward for all the hard work that, that the club volunteers put in. And uh, for me, disappointingly, what we see a lot of today is coach loyalty, so rather than club loyalty. Um, so I think, we, you know, when a Matilda um, stays in Australia, doesn't, you know, is just quite happy to be in her own skin, in her own country, doesn't feel the need to go overseas, just, you know, she's just happy playing the game here. That's great. It's a great connection that we can make locally, and I think you're right, the, the, that bringing that A-League into into the picture so you don't just jump from local FC straight to the Matildas, you know, that there's a another stop that they can make, another game that they can go and watch. You, you know, the Matildas aren't going to play every day of the week. No, it's a pathway, so, isn't it? So, you know, we need to to get um, young people, both males and females, out to A-League games, out to um, the women's A-League games, and they need to see that. And, and if they can see the connection to someone that they know is famous because, let's face it, you know, that's just the star moment is, it's, it's is a sto- lot for little kids. Yeah, it's the storytelling, um, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's the... um, I, I think it's a really important link to have both in the in the men's and the women's game to have some to national players playing at home. That's a positive. I, I wanted to ask about a challenge, though. We've talked about coaching licences. We're down to one woman coach in the A-League women's. Uh, the national team coached by a man, albeit the under-20s and the under-17s, coached by women in Leah Blaney and Ray Dower. What is the breakthrough moment to get more female coaches, not just in at a grassroots level, but to get them to the top of the pyramid? How much of it is purely administrators making perhaps unconsciously or consciously biased decisions as opposed to there just isn't the talent pool to draw from or a lack of imagination with regards to, um, in this instance, we will choose a woman to be our coach. I say go out on a limb and choose a woman anyway. Like, just choose it. Give them a break. No coach gets to where they're going unless they've been given a break, unless somebody puts some faith in them that they can do the job. And I just don't believe with all the amazing female football talent that we have in this country that we don't have enough female coaches to coach at that level. Go out on a limb and put your faith in a female coach that perhaps hasn't had a gig yet. That's that's what I say. And that may be simplistic and it may be idealistic and it may be that it's not my dollars that are that are supporting that that A-League club. But if if we don't have A-Leagues, A-League clubs making that taking that gamble, taking that chance, or, or giving someone that opportunity, um, then then we're just going to keep perpetuating that problem. Are we licensing enough coaches? Are we building the talent pool of female coaches to a satisfactory level, or is that also one of the reasons there aren't enough top female coaches in leadership positions at the very top of the game? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I don't think talent, similar to, to what you said, Linda, talent isn't isn't our problem. Um, it's the pathway and the systems that we're putting in place. Um, we're actually um, uh, very close to to launching a, a new coaching pathway. Um, so that is is coming up. I can't say too much more about that now. Um, but it is something we need to look at. It is something that currently our current system is 
is not designed to um, include women or to attract women into those coaching positions. Um, I think it's less about licensing and it's more about the development that we provide them and the support that we provide them because you can license as many coaches, female coaches as you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're transferring into being active coaches, coaches that are progressing um, their development and taking up more positions. So I think that, yes, you know, it's a, it's a two-pronged approach yes, look at the pathways around the licensing aspect, but also we need to really start looking at how are we mentoring these women? How are we providing support networks? How are we starting to influence the people that are in those decision-making positions to give them that opportunity so that they can step up yeah, and take that coaching role? That's I agree. I think it's, again, you get back to the decision-making and who are the people that are deciding who hires these coaches? And if you look at the the makeup of the people that are in those roles, there's probably not as many women as we'd like. And that's where, you know, we need women in those those decision-making roles. And then, yeah, I agree, we absolutely need to um, give them a chance. If I can just bring that all the way back to one of the programs that through the Office of Sport and the Legacy is the Daughters and Dads program. And a huge component of that is uh, looking at gender bias. And um, we've been pleasantly surprised, I guess, um, on the number of dads or father figures that have participated in the program. And part of the program every week is an education piece and it's 30 minutes. The first the first session is actually a 90-minute session just for dads only. And part of that talks about the gender bias that girls experience from the time they're born through their whole life. And you know, we, as women, we experience it every day and we it's just part of us growing up. But for this program, the Daughters and Dads program, it actually educates dads on what their daughters face. And I and the biggest feedback has been from dads going, wow, I, I actually never thought about that. I didn't realise that by saying she's so pretty or she's so cute as opposed to he's so sporty or he's so strong, how those sort of the words and the actions and things that we do all through our life in society, show those gender biases. So, um, you know, that program is, I think, a fantastic opportunity to change a societal value that, you know, is certainly changing every day, but uh, not quick enough for for our A-League women coaches. That's one challenge. I want to just go around the table. Give me your uh, current challenge that you might be facing, regardless of whether there's a a solution or not. Um, Give me a challenge. uh, Give me sort of why it is a challenge off the back of the World Cup and what you're trying to deliver in your current role. Who would like to go first? That's a tough one. There's so many. (laughs) I I think for for us um, at association level, and I'm pretty sure that um, most associations would fall into this uh, area is is being able to deliver a hundred percent quality on a game. So having um, sufficient referees to to cover our our matches, um, and that always the a lack of referees will always tie in with um, a poor. Um, club culture or a poor experience um, a lot of times, shouldn't say always, um, ties in with that experience, that that how the referees are feeling on the field by what's being hurled at them from a sideline or from players. 
um, I, I know I'm not alone in, in association land by saying that's probably one of our biggest um, battles at the moment is changing the culture of, of sideline behaviour towards referees. I think for me it's it just comes back to facilities, um, particularly from a, a national standpoint. That is by far the biggest challenge that we're seeing across the board. Um, if we uh, don't continue not only to to build new facilities but to improve the ones that we have, uh, we we are not going to attract and retain women and girls within our game. Um, it's a massive, massive issue, obviously more so for some in terms of their ability to cater to the demand. Um, and I just think that we we need not only more facilities but more inclusive facilities as well. Yeah, and no, I'd probably follow on that on from that and say equity. So, you know, men's football has been around, what, 40 more years than women. Um, so there's already a strong base there. And for women to try and get that, you know, not even equality, just equity, just even sort of to get improved more competitions with more players coming in, a lot of uh, associations and clubs are already at capacity. How do we find space within that to allow our females to come in and, and enjoy the game and get the same sort of pathway that a male player has. To finish, winter 2024 season, this is where everyone is hoping for the biggest uptick in terms of players, age groups, you know, even totally new clubs. Give us a bit of an early weather forecast of, of where we're heading for 2024, both at a Football New South Wales and a, an association level within Nepean for what you're sort of hoping to see and what we might actually see in terms of increase in participation and uptake in the game. Well, I think even just looking at the summer um, figure numbers, we're at uh, 40%, a 40% increase already, 45% in women. And and interestingly enough, 50% uh, increase in senior women. So I really think that's where we're going to see a, a big uptake for 2024 is in, um, you know, my demographic of the, the mums and uh, who've never played before who really want to take it up. I, and I want us to really make sure that we're capitalising on that. With We've got a winter social program that's available from, from a Football New South Wales perspective next year. Um, so I think it's flexible formats looking at trying to get all of our players you know I don't want any any player male or female uh, or of any um, gender to come in and want to say I want to be able to play and we're not be able to find a space for them definitely um, I yes we're prepared for growth well as prepared as we can be um, yeah I, I'm expecting growth Um Hoping probably around that eight to ten percent, um, and we're looking at, um, or we're excited actually to be looking at, at diversifying our game through the social formats. Um, so more participation, but not necessarily only in that eleven v eleven. So we're, we're, that's um, that's something that we're pretty excited about seeing um, that diversification of the game. And slightly different question for you, Carly, to finish for you. What do you hope the conversation is a year on? So we'll be just over a year from the World Cup finishing. Say we've just finished the winter 2024 season. What do you hope the conversation actually is in a year's time? And what will we be talking about? And what will we have seen in the next 12 months? I think um, 
I think what I hope to see is that it validates everything that we've said today. Um, so I hope that um, our, our participation increases um, by the numbers that we we said. So probably more so nationally by another 10% is, is what we're really targeting. So I hope that that increases. I hope that uh, the flexible formats continue to perform and show the value and the, the demand for those continues. Um, and I hope it... it uh, it, yeah, it just validates the interest that's come off the back of this World Cup, that we look back in 12 months and say, what a catalyst that that World Cup was, what a moment. Um, and we've really leveraged and harnessed the momentum around this, not just at a at a grassroots level, but at, a, at an A-League women's level, at a national team's perspective. So I hope that the, the whole game um, really takes this moment, takes the opportunity and leverages it as much as they can. Carly Milliken, General Manager of the World Cup Legacy Program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Linda Sarone, CEO of the Nepean Football Association. Thank you. Thank you. And Helen Armstrong, Football New South Wales Legacy Manager. My, my very last question is for you. From a Football New South Wales point of view, and this is a, a Football New South Wales podcast, of course, um, your, your team that you're a part of here at Football New South Wales, um, just give us your, your final little uh, assessment of anyone who's been inspired or motivated by listening to this. Where should they go on the Football New South Wales website? What actions can they take? What can your team continue to deliver going forward to people who uh, continue, you know, may have had their interest piqued by any of the varying subjects we've discussed on this podcast? Yeah, so definitely go onto the Football New South Wales website, which is footballnewsouthwales.com.au. Uh, there's a specific tab for the legacy program. So I certainly encourage anyone in the female space who is looking at scholarships, whether it be through refereeing, through coaching, volunteers, administrators, um, certainly go on there and have a look. We've got expressions of interest for all of those. Um, reach out to any any of the team in the in the New South Wales Football Legacy team um, for support. We we are encouraging everyone to you know whether it be a club association or individual player level, um, but yeah, definitely get out there and play. Well, Linda, Carly, and Helen, thank you for joining me on today's podcast, and thank you to everyone for listening. It's been a wide ranging discussion, but I feel as though we've hit a lot of the keynotes regarding the World Cup legacy. My name's Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for listening to the Football New South Wales Community Podcast. And even though the season is finished, the podcast will continue through the off season. We will be back in a few weeks discussing more of the topics and issues that affect grassroots football. That's it for now, though. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.